Hey, this is Jordan from Cabin Floor Esoterica, and you're listening to the Foxy Podcast.
Welcome to the Foxy Podcast, bi-monthly show brought to you by Freeform Freakout. Show is produced at KMSU Studios in Mankato, Minnesota. And here in the Foxy Podcast, we try to dig deeper into underground and experimental sounds of the past and present. And welcome to episode number 64 of the Foxy Podcast Show. Hope you're all doing well out there. We started things off here with an older track from the great group Big Blood. It's called Men Were Lions. This comes from the release Night Terrors on the Isle of Lewis Harden that originally came out as a tape back in 2010 on Cabin Floor Esoterica and started during the year prior to that release. Cabin Floor Esoterica has since gone on to build an impressive catalog filled with works that tend to focus on more rustic avant-folk, psych and noise sounds befitting of the label's name. And uh, likewise, the label has focused on creating unique hand-assembled packaging for its releases, with each release coming with additional ephemera included. And as you heard introducing things at the beginning of the show, Cabin Floor Esoterica is run by Jordan Spencer, who has also put out his own releases on the label and others under various names such as White Fur and R. Franklin. On this episode, we'll be speaking with Jordan about running the label and about his own music. And you also get a chance to hear a bunch of the music from the label, including some forthcoming material from releases due out in the months ahead. Before we get into all of that, I thought I'd play a few more recent Cabin Floor Esoterica releases just to get us started. This first one was included in the very limited edition Halastrana 5-tape box set that came out late last year. This collection contained all of the recordings that Stephen R. Smith put out under the name Halastrana, and this track originally appeared on the fielding release that Last Visible Dog put out. This is called Poganishta.
First, uh, can you just lay out some of the background on on when you started up Cabin Floor Esoterica? I guess maybe what made you want to start a label, made you want to kind of get into this? Yeah. um, So it was 2009 when the first batch came out, not January, but it had been a thing. It was kind of in the planning stages for a while. Um, I was in Ohio at the time in a small town, and Ohio had a lot of good, weird tape scene kind of things going on. And I wasn't necessarily a, a part of that, but I was definitely um, heavily into observing it. I had a friend who had really encouraged me to, to check a lot of things out. And so my partner Katie and I were taking a lot of trips to Cleveland and Columbus 
um, just to check out shows. And I, I started just getting really interested in that. And um, I played around a bunch as a teenager in high school, just doing like weird basement noise projects, starting up labels and dubbing tapes and not knowing at all what I was doing. And uh, Cabin Floor just kind of naturally rose out of all of that as more cohesive sort of project, something that I put a lot more thought into that was a bit, it wasn't planned exactly, and that there wasn't any particular release that I really wanted to make happen or any of my own music that I was really trying to release. It just sort of it came together and just, I just emailed some people, really. Um, <laughs> and then they sent me masters for things, and it just kind of picked up from there. There was never really a, a grand plan or a a long-term idea. I, I didn't really think it was going to last long just because I thought I was going to lose a ton of money on it, but I happen to break even pretty regularly at this point. So it's, I can't imagine stopping at any point. Right. I mean, and then you were based in, in Maine for a while, I guess I, I'll forever associate your label with Maine. I don't know why that is probably because when I first discovered what you were doing, you were there. Um, you, you were there and I think kind of in the mix with certain labels and artists that I associate with that area, like time leg records and, and big blood and things like that. I mean, was that something that you uh, were aware of or connected to in your time out there? Definitely. Yeah. Um, that was kind of one of the main reasons I ended up there. Um, I had just kind of come into contact with Matt Lajoie who did Land of Trist at the time and the Cursesis project um, just through the internet. And I was planning on going with some friends to the Time of Rivers Festival that Nemo from Time Lag and another guy had set up. And all my friends bailed on me, and I had already bought a ticket, so I ended up staying with Matt at his uh, Conga Street house where basically all the people involved with all those different Lanham Trist projects lived. And I stayed there with them for a few days, and we made some music. And uh, it was really... That was definitely... Um, a big part of how cabin floor kind of came together. It was in October of 2008. So I was still figuring things out, but had a lot of things worked out at that point. And there's uh there's definitely a lot of things where I just kind of ripped off what Matt was doing with Land Motris <laughs> and what I ended up doing with cabin floor. And he's definitely been a, a big influence and a, someone I can really bounce ideas off of since then. And then Colleen and Caleb from Big Blood, uh, we had just traded some things in the past and I started seeing them a bit when I was living there. And I never actually met Nemo, oddly enough. When I was there the first time, he was really sick and I don't think he even showed up for his own festival. Oh, jeez. And then around the time I moved there, um, I think was right around when he had kind of moved upstate and was focusing more on family and things like that. So I still have never physically crossed paths with Nemo, but Time Lag has, of course, been a huge influence on the things that I've done and mm -hmm. just always really appreciated the whole New England scene and things like Feeding Tube now. Right. Just really great stuff consistently coming out of that area. Definitely, yeah. Well, you had mentioned you had no you know, intentions of keeping this going. You didn't, you didn't think that it would last that long. And there actually was a, a period of time where you kind of went into hiatus for about a year or maybe a year and a half. So I, I'm wondering, you know, so many labels, especially tape labels kind of come and go so quickly, you know, what has kept you motivated to keep, 
the label going? Well, there's always new things out there, and I'm always hearing great new projects and things that I want to get involved with. That break I took was mostly just because Katie and I had just moved back to Ohio, and we're so caught up with just reconnecting with friends and family and making up for all the money we spent moving cross-country a couple times that tapes just didn't have a place at that point, but it was still very much in the back of my head. I was still spending what money I could on new tapes and things like that and keeping in touch with people. And it's the sort of thing where I've always been really bad at keeping on any kind of consistent schedule. Um, it's kind of how I am with releases. There's never any rhyme or reason really to when things come out. Sometimes I'll sit on something for probably a bit too long, maybe longer than some artists would like, just because I'm waiting for the right moment to, to kind of have the right things that come into place for it and particular ideas that feel right. Um, and I, I never give anybody deadlines. Sometimes they'll ask me, like, what's a, what's a good deadline for this? When do you need this master? When do you need this or that? And I'm so bad at just giving people answers for that because it just seems, I mean, it's, it's 50 tapes or whatever, you know? It, it seems kind of silly to, to tell them they have to have it at any particular point. Right. So I guess right. I've always been pretty open to things coming and going. And I don't know. I, I can't imagine not doing it until people quit making great things out there. And I don't count on anybody stopping making great music anytime soon. So as long as that's still happening, I'm still going to be interested in helping people put things out and making tapes that I would want to buy. And I'm never going to be on any regular schedule though. That's for sure. They come out when they're meant to come out. Breaks are always. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Well, you know, from the outset, uh, Cabin Floresoterica tapes have always had what I've consider, you know, really nice handmade packaging. There's just sort of this whole uh, concept at play with each release, and they often include other texts and these little found objects and stuff inside. So I was wondering if you could explain, I guess, the importance of, of hand-assembled, even home-dubbed releases, because you do home-dubbed releases as well. I guess how that kind of um, how that plays a part in what you want to do with the label. Yeah. First, thanks for appreciating that. Um, there's definitely some people where maybe it's just a little annoying that I do things like that. I don't know. I guess I'm I'm making things that I would want to buy. Um, I know there's definitely like home dubbing is not necessarily the uh, best way to get sounds across sometimes, but I, I'm still throwing those Bandcamp. Uh, coupons in there so I guess that kind of makes up for it but for me at least with like the home dubbing aspect of it it's it's a matter of being able to do it as soon as I I get something in hand I've got some tapes ready I'm able to do it in-house and and that aspect of really being able to kind of control that and do it without having to outsource it is kind of nice Um, I don't think I could ever really be in that position where I'm, I'm sending, you know, PDFs and WAV files to, to a producer and they're, they're sending me back a finished product. Um, I can't knock it, but it's just, it's not something that I would ever want to do. I, I like having some kind of involvement in the release and um, yeah, I don't know. I guess I just really like making these little unique objects and things like that. Um, so I put in, different little objects and stuff like that. Uh, like it's 
just kind of happened by chance at first. There's something fun to put in with things. Now I almost feel like I have to keep doing it. I got to <laughs> kind of break from that a little bit, try some different things out. You're going to get, you're going to get, or anything. you're going to get hate mail from uh, people. W- wait, I didn't get a rusty <laughs> screw this time. Jeez. <laughs> come on. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> well, I, I, I mean, I guess with things like that, it's, it's, um, it's kind of nice that you, you can't really digitize a rusty screw or like some dead leaves and things like that. Mm-hmm. And I, I also kind of like that the, the things change and there's, there's a sense of impermanence. Like um, the Aaron Martin cassette that I released, like the first year, had this little beaded tassel with a, a feather on it. And I recently looked at my copy of that and the feather is just completely disintegrated. It's just gone. You can't even tell that it was there and there's just like a little pile of dust next to it. And I guess some people might be a little annoyed by that. Um, but I, I kind of like that. It's, it's not going to stay the same and it's, it's not a permanent thing. Right. Right. Now you mentioned uh, your partner, Katie, and it's, it's not just you uh, running the label. I mean, she's involved as well. How do you guys kind of, delegate uh, responsibilities? I know that sounds so uh, business-like, but how do you guys go about operating this together? Well, she would say that it's it's basically all me. Um, she, the biggest, most important thing she's done is just been a support. Um, I can bounce ideas off of her. Uh, she gives a lot of input, like when we get demos that are sent to us or when I'm trying to work out some kind of packaging and I'll run it by her and she's given a lot of great ideas and sort of ethereal things to the label over the years. And most importantly, she did all the cloth pouches that were a total pain. And I quit doing those recently, (laughs) partly just to kind of give her a break from that. I haven't uh, run the idea of another cloth pouch past her in a while, but that was all her, a lot of those things that happened early on. She was really involved in that aspect of it. But since the start, she's always just kind of been someone there to kind of bounce ideas off of and give me some outside perspective that I often need to really take a step back from things and, and look at it with fresh eyes. And sure. It's been really, really important over the years. Yeah. Um, well, going back to that idea of these hand-assembled objects and things like that, or even home-dub releases, you know, with with cassettes i guess becoming a bit more ubiquitous in recent years i mean there's so many tape labels and stuff popping up here and there do you feel that they've lost some of that personalized feel you know i was reading something that one long article and i should have uh, looked up the the title of it but uh hal mcgee you know famous diy tape artist label head uh, had mentioned how you know that was sort of essential to tapes, which made him so appealing, and and he feels like this new wave of people uh, aren't doing that so much. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I I think it's always going to exist. There's always going to be people doing that. Um, the format might change. Um, you know, in a few years, people might say that a, a certain Bandcamp page doesn't have as much heart as a different one. Um, but it's I don't know. Uh, it, it's always going to be there. I mean, there's still people like um, John Collin out of the UK doing the Winebox Press who's just making these beautiful wood sculptures that are so time-consuming and so heavy to, to ship. 
and he's just making these really great things. It, it's still there if you look for it. And I mean, Burger Records isn't going to put Winebox out of business. He's going <laughs> to do it because he likes to do it. And I think that those things are always going to kind of exist. And I mean, I don't know what I would really do if I was selling out of 50 or 100 tapes instantly. And the only thing I could offer people is like a download code. Mm-hmm. And, uh, couldn't keep up with it you know i mean luckily i haven't been so successful that i have to do something differently i'm able to do what i like because it's it's such a small group of people that are interested in it so it it works out really well but i don't know uh, it's always going to exist right i think is yeah well, let's uh, let's jump into some music here, and I was going to start off with one of the more recent things that you put out. Um, this tape from Olorum is what we've decided on calling it, if we're pronouncing it correctly. <laughs> but it, it's a, a release called "He Remembers There Were Gardens," and Olorum is a, a Danish artist. And uh, this this one took me a while to kind of get into and figure out. But man, it's just completely absorbing once you just kind of tap into its flow, if that's the right way of putting it. What are your thoughts on this record? Oh, man. I mean, I, I think it's beautiful. I really, just like you said, the way it kind of washes over, you can tap into it. And once you hit that point where it's really happening, man, yeah, it's, I, I'm kind of the same way. When he first sent it to me, I thought it was nice. And I was wondering about making a release for it and everything. And the more I listened to it, the more it kind of sunk in. I mean, it's it's such tiny things happening there. Mm-hmm. But once once you match up with it, it really happens. Now, did he do the the image for the front cover of this one? Because I know he's done some work for like maybe was it giant a giant fern label, or is that something that you yeah. came up with? He did do the imagery for yeah. That. that is that is one of his collages. Yeah. Okay. Um, Paul does a bunch of visual art and it is just as good as all of his audio work. He he does really incredible collages and yeah, he sent me that just as a like, if you, if you feel like using this for the artwork, that'd be cool. If not, it's fine. And I just, I really loved how that fit in with the sound and I, yeah, there was no way I wasn't going to use that. Right, really cool stuff. Well, let's uh, jump into an excerpt here from this release called He Remembers There Were Gardens. This is Olorum.
Well, the name Cabin Floor Esoterica, it evokes, I guess, a certain rustic, maybe avant-garde feel to it, or it has a certain rustic avant-garde feel to it. Um, Do you feel like that's a a common thread, maybe both sonically and visually, that runs through the work that you've done with the label? 
Yeah. Um, it was kind of a subconscious thing. It kind of just happened. It was never an idea from the outset that I was going to go for any particular look or feel or anything like that. Um, but it, it definitely just kind of came out of the sort of things I was surrounding myself with and still am to a certain extent. And now I'm, I'm living in the city. Um, the place where I started the label um, was a much smaller place. Uh, it wasn't necessarily rural Ohio, but I was very much connected with that. I spent a lot of time on my grandparents' farm. Uh, friends and I would just go hiking on the weekends, things like that. And it was never far away. It was how I spent a lot of time was just kind of outside and involved with those sort of things. Um, I think for the whole, basically the first year of the label, most of the artwork came from a single stack of magazines that I found in an old abandoned A-frame cabin that was out in the woods. And I just kind of happened to go into it. The door was open. There were leaves inside. It was kind of just left there. Like this guy had just picked up and gone and left all his things. And there was a stack of like American Hunter magazine and some things like that <laughs> from the 70s that just kind of stuck out to me. And I, I ended up having to take so much stuff out of this place I had to just kind of hike it down to this ditch nearby. And then when I finally got back to my car, drive over the ditch to pick it all up. And that's where um, the very first cabin floor release, the B side of that tape, the A side is just field recordings from the area. And then the B side is cut up pieces from this tape that I found in that house where this guy is just doing an audio letter to his girlfriend or something about oh, how he visited her at Radio Shack and how she wouldn't give him attention. and But he's eaten bear before, and he's just this outdoorsy guy. So I guess in a lot of ways, that, that one trip to this weird abandoned place um, kind of set Cabin Floor in a particular direction just based on the things I picked up there. Interesting. But, um, yeah, I guess... Uh, I guess that's a lot of my semi-rural Ohio coming through. Can you do a reissue of that, like of maybe 10 tapes or something? <laughs> I'd really like to hear that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That sounds, I, I thought about doing um, like a sequel to it, where now that I'm I'm living in more of a city, just kind of doing something a lot more city-based and seeing how it turns out. But I just, yeah, it's it's just not the same. I don't know, but yeah, I might I might have to reissue that first tape. Right. It was kind of a fun one. A, a sequel of your own conversation to someone you met down the line. <laughs> I have oh, not man. eaten. I've yeah. not eaten bear. I've not hunted bear, but <laughs> just kind of ramblings of your life, little phases of it. You could do yeah. something like that. <laughs> <laughs> well, you've uh, you also have a a, a print based offshoot of Cabin Floor Esoterica. It's called Painted Door Press. And you haven't done a lot of stuff yet with that, but you've done a few uh, poetry chat books. There's a photo zine that you've done. Is this, I guess, primarily an outlet for your own visual and written work, or are you looking to expand that more and include you know, other writers, photographers, artists, etc.? Well, the primary reason for it starting was just to give a name to something um, to, to have something to stamp on the back of this kind of magazine that I, I was starting up called Wood Wasp. Um, and Wood Wasp is still very much the, the biggest thing that I've done with it. I've done two issues at this point, um, and it's mostly just 
works from people in, in the area where I grew up, people I'm still in contact with, and it's a collection of poetry and short stories and comic art, photos, things like that. Um, and that's, that's the main focus of Painted Door. Um, I've since gotten a risograph machine, Mm. And so I, I'm not at 100% yet, um, but I, I can see once I get that fully working and going and, and bringing that element again of the keeping things in-house, being able to produce from start to finish here, I can see that definitely being something that, that kind of takes over more. And um, right now I'm working on the third issue of Wood Wasp, and it, it's got some other people outside of my immediate close group of Ohio friends um, like Wes Tyree, the the guitarist, he's mm-hmm. got this piece he wrote of um, kind of his version of how he channels the blues. It's sort of a creative nonfiction piece that I think um, is going to end up in the next issue of that. So it's expanding, but slowly. It's it's mostly a thing that I kind of make just to give to friends and to kind of document sort and thing sort of. Yeah, things happening in a particular time. I was just going to ask, is this something that's strictly available through the website, or do you have it through other outlets right now? Um, I mean, if you happen to be in uh, Mansfield, Ohio, there's a small bookstore downtown that has the first two issues. I've, I've been meaning to, to put them up on the website, uh, just kind of have like the PayPal thing. Mm-hmm. I had the first issue up for a while, um, and a couple people picked it up, but there's not a lot of crossover, oddly enough, between the uh, the tape scene, um, tape buying public, and the uh, weird poetry short story zine buying public. Right. So the, there hasn't been a whole lot of interest, so I've mostly just been keeping it to just local. Um, but yeah, in the future, it'll be there. If there's some, Gotta, like, like, being like Wes is involved, I mean, I suppose if there's some crossover there with some musicians involved or other visual artists that are yeah. part of the label that makes sense i suppose yeah definitely and i i mean i've played around for the idea of um doing something where it's a um like a music release paired with a print release where they kind of there's a dialogue between the two of them whether it's necessarily that someone is making music and writing or if the pieces are just kind of bouncing off of each other in certain ways. Um, I was a big fan of Aspen magazine, the magazine in a box. Mm-hmm. And I've never, uh, never had one in real life, but uh, Ubu web has the, the whole archive. And I spent a lot of time looking at that kind of like the, um, the second issue of wood wasp was kind of a, uh, weird tribute to Wallace Berman Semina magazine. It's just a bunch of loose leaves in a, uh, pocket folder. Mm-hmm. So there's, um, yeah, there, there's some possibility of things like that happening in the future, me ripping off another sort of important work. Mm-hmm. Well, one other thing that's up that you do have on your, your website are these cabin floor radio mixes, which you've been doing these, I mean, for quite a few years now, at least two, three years, if I remember correctly. Is that something, and they're always like seasonal mixes that you put together. Is that just something for your own? I guess, personal enjoyment, the idea of putting together a mixer. Were you ever do? Did you ever do like college radio or anything like that over the years? No, I've, I've actually never been involved in any kind of radio project. Um, so there is a, a Columbus Internet radio kind of in the planning stages at this point. And 
I'm going to see what I can do about sneaking into there and see if I can get something set up. But it's mostly just been a matter of, I mean, in high school, I, I burned a lot of CDs for friends with different mixes that I would make for them, make all these different little personal mixtapes and things like that just for my friends and things that I thought they would like. I've always just geeked out about music, so it just kind of happened naturally. And these mixes that I post now, it's the sort of thing where I'm just kind of making them anyway. Uh, it's, it's things that I'm listening to at any particular time, and there's always been a seasonal influence on the things that I do. I have mm-hmm. particular times of year where I'm more likely to get things done and others where I'm not. And it, I definitely get some seasonal effective going on. So <laughs> right, right. mixes going on that kind of schedule. It, it just kind of happened naturally, but yeah, it's, it's just something that's kind of fun to do. I mean, it's, it's very much not in the realm of uh, the things I release on cabin floor. The, the mixes I make aren't, that weird i mean there's a few things that some people might be a little little turned off by on occasion but it sticks to pretty pretty accessible music i guess yeah there's a lot of like soul a little something different soul music and reggae music and stuff like that if i remember going back through some of the older ones yeah well, yeah. so this is maybe a good thing that you're doing this here. We can uh, edit this up, and this will be your audition tape for that internet radio station. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> can definitely. We can splice it together and see what we can do here. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I wanted to get into uh, talking about some of the forthcoming material that you have uh, in the works with the label. And you've been doing tapes for quite a while, but based on our back-and-forth correspondence... Uh, you had mentioned that you're heading into your first non-cassette release. You have a lathe coming out soon, right? Yeah, that's it's funny. I mean, it's it's cabin floor number ten, so it's um it's been planned since the very first year. It's been in the works for a long time now, and it's it's gone through a lot of different ideas. But I guess it's consistently always been the idea that there's going to be a seven inch of some kind. Mm-hmm. Um, Matt Lajoie and I had talked about some different things that we were going to do with it, whether it was like a split between my old project Gorman and his old one Cursistus or um, different things like that. But now, for whatever reason, this year it's finally kind of come into my head that it would be great to do a, a compilation of um, modern guitarists. Something about the idea of a, a compilation 7-inch has always kind of appealed to me. I, I like the idea of having to work in tiny little time constraints where they, they can't go over that two-minute mark. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, I'm not sure exactly what drew me to that, but I, I definitely think of um, there was a, a magazine that Matt Valentine put out in like the 90s that had a 7-inch compilation that kind of came with it. And... Um, that's that's definitely a, a point that I've thought of. I, I've thought about pairing a magazine with this release, kind of like we talked about with the Painted Door thing. Right. Um, but for now, it's looking like it's just going to be a, a straight compilation um, where it's Raglor, Tashi Dorji, Dylan Acock, Dan Bachman, Matt Lajoie, and Wes Tyree. And so fitting six people on a seven-inch, it. There's some nice little constraints there. I, I think just it's going to work say, out really well. That's a lot on a on a seven inch release. Dang! So it's two minute oh, yeah. tracks for each of them. Is that is that the time yeah. constraints you're giving? Okay. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> and when, when do you expect that one? <laughs> Are you hoping to get that out before the end of the year? Then. 
Yeah, definitely. Um, I'm planning sometime this fall. I'm only waiting on one track at this point, and I, I'm thinking I'm going to have that in the next couple of days here. And most of the other work is kind of planned out. Um, I'm still waiting on the artwork to really kind of come together based on what this last track is. It, it seems weird to, to put something together without really hearing it. I don't know. I'm a, I'm a little strange like that. I got to hear the whole thing before I really sit down. <laughs> but yeah, I think it's going to be before the end of the year. Um, the recent white fur box set was kind of a, uh, a fundraiser of sorts for that. That was kind of the main reason that um, this hadn't happened sooner. It was just a matter of having the funds in place for something like this. And I don't know. I don't know that I'm going to keep doing vinyl though. I, I've heard a lot of horror stories lately about 14 month turnarounds and things <laughs> yeah. like that. And, yep. You know, yeah. tapes, they work out all right. I, I like doing the tapes. Right. Especially not if you're necessarily, home. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I don't know if I, I'm necessarily looking at making that jump anytime soon. Mm-hmm. I think things will work out just fine doing the tapes. But I am really excited about finally making this seven inch happen. Right. Well, we're going to play something from the Tashi Dorji. Uh, tra- uh, there is selection here in just a moment, but maybe before we jump into that, let's talk about a couple of the other tapes then that you have out, because you do have uh, about three three tapes at least coming out here in the fall as well. One from Adam Cadell, who's of the Scrapes, Australian duo, um, Nick Storing and Tillman Lewis, a, a cello duo called The Knot, and then Steve Palmer, who's out of the Twin Cities, right? Yeah, yeah. Steve's work, I came to through a project that wasn't even under his own name. Um, it was just called like Garfield Avenue Sessions. I think it's just the only thing it said. Um, through a great Wisconsin label called Ambivalent Soap. Oh, yeah, yeah. And um, Tom, who runs that label, had just started sending me all these things. And I've loved it all, but that one stuck out to me. Um, and then I heard Steve's tape on Dying for Bad Music. And that really hit me. And when I emailed him, he mentioned how he had done that, too. So the two of those things together, I mean, they're both just such great tapes. I, I really love the way he's able to blend those sort of uh, worship solo pieces with something a little more uh, noisy and psychedelic than people usually do on those things. Right. And then... The Nick Storing and Tillman Lewis, now after hearing this track that you sent along, I mean, very different from the other uh, Nick Storing material that I've heard before. I mean, is this the first stuff that they've done under that name, The Knot? They've been playing for a while, and I think there might have been some smaller releases in the past, um, but this is sort of like their their bigger release. They've been working, they were kind of shopping it around, and who was interested in it and I had contacted Nick a while back about doing something with him especially the knot I kind of just stumbled upon it on SoundCloud of all places before I'd even heard any of Nick's um, composition work which now I mean I I absolutely love all that work too but yeah the knot the knot really sticks out to me I've always been a real fan of the cello and the things they're able to do with just those two instruments um, without any kind of crazy after effects or anything like that. It, it's an incredibly dynamic, just wonderful racket of a release. Mm-hmm. I'm really excited about getting that one out. 
And we should also mention then additional string work on that other release from Adam Cadell from The Scrapes, his solo work. And there was just a Scrapes tape uh, that I just heard. It came out on Soft Abuse, which is really, really good. But um, this track is pretty strong, too, that you sent along from Adam's uh, new release or forthcoming release as well. Yeah, yeah. Soft Abuse is how I I came to that one. Um, Chris had mentioned that tape being in the works, and I dug into the Scrapes stuff and was just really into it. And um, I emailed them and started talking to Adam about like Henry Flint and things like that. And we started talking about the work he had done. He's actually um, he's got a PhD in musicology and is really interested in underground violin and traditional Australian folk music violin and things like that. Um, and once we started talking about that, I just got really interested in the things he was doing. And he sent me this hour block of music. I mean, it's a, it's a 60 minute tape. And it's just great work. I really, really love what he's doing. And, I mean, Henry Flynn is definitely an obvious touchstone on those things, but Mm -hmm. it really stands on its own, and I I think people are going to be pretty into it. I'm really digging what he's done. Well, yeah, you'll get a chance to uh, hear that in this set here. So we're going to start things off from one of those two-minute contributions to the forthcoming Lathe. This is uh, Tashi Dorji with a track called April Woods Are Red.
With your own music, you've recorded under various aliases over the years and recording under the name R. Franklin. You had mentioned previously Gorman. And then you had recorded some stuff, maybe your uh, most prolific, I don't know if that's the right way to put it, but White Fur is another one. And that was actually a project credited to R. Franklin. (laughs) I mean, do you like maintaining this anonymity in terms of what you're doing with your own music? Yeah, I I definitely like a bit of distance. Um, Part of it, I guess, is that I can be about self-conscious when it comes to those things. Um, But part of it's also, I guess, some kind of effort to separate it so it can kind of stand on its own. It doesn't have to be a tape from the guy who does Tavern Floor or whatever that means. Mm -hmm. Um, So with the White Fur stuff, I created this R. Franklin character to kind of push things on to because I, I kind of knew from the start that it was going to be something that I was going to do for a little while. It it felt more like a, a greater statement of the, the musical ideas that I had at that time than just a kind of toss-off practice tape where I was really into the jam that I had just done and felt like making a copy of it. So it was something where that first white fur tape, I mean, I spent a little over a year, maybe two years kind of working on that and really about the same amount of time on each of the tapes that came out after that, under that name. Mm-hmm. So the idea of making this character that I could kind of just push things onto was something that I, I really just kind of latched onto. Um, it, it just felt like a way to kind of get away from it and let it stand and, and make myself feel a little better about it in the process, I guess. Are, are, are the releases then from these names if only they and before returning are these new monikers that you've used of late because uh, i'm just thinking some of the the tactics or the sonics are somewhat similar to like white fur and gorman or are these other people those those are both me um but i i don't see them being something i'm going to revisit uh they they were more so like you said, in the process of making a white fur tape, I mean, it goes on for over a year every time where I, I just kind of obsessively editing and re-editing and kind of layering things. I've got hours and hours of things that I kind of smash together and see what sticks. And so there's a lot of sessions that start out moving one direction that go somewhere else. And I end up not necessarily wanting to abandon them, but they, they don't feel like these fuller, bigger ideas that kind of would fit into where I was going originally when I was thinking that I'm doing the next volume of this White Fur series. Mm-hmm. So the If Only They and the Before Returning tapes, they definitely fit under that. Um, and name-wise, I mean, I, it's more like an extension of the artwork. It, it's not necessarily this idea that the artist is called Before Returning or If Only They. It's It's more just taking this space that I'm given where I'm supposed to give an artist and a title or at least just an artist. And I'm, I'm filling that in with something that just feels like an extension of all the other things that are kind of a part of that, whether it's the, the track titles or the, the fragment of writing that I put in with it and mm-hmm. things like that. It's, it's just kind of an extension of the entire kind of vibe of the tape, I guess. Sure, sure. Well, now you just put out uh, a white fur four tape box set, 
and it contains uh, the whole Lake Seeds trilogy, um, which you said, you know, you've kind of worked through that whole process over many, many years. And then there's an extra tape of unreleased material. And I guess, you know, you, you're talking about this whole idea of, of names and things like that. Does this release, being that it's kind of, you're th- putting that out there, does this basically mark the end of white fur <laughs> as we know it? Do you feel like you're moving on from that material now? Yeah, yeah, I, I've definitely, I've definitely moved on from it. Um, so it is kind of a closing of that. I've been working on a, a new thing for um, going on a year now. Again, gotta get a little quicker with these things, I guess. <laughs> and it's it's a lot different than those. So it's still using a lot of the same tools. There's still a lot of tape and tape machines, and um, the viola is again very very prominent in the recordings and piano and things like that, but it's, it's a lot less murky. It's a lot less clustered and, and really packed to the edges of the tape. Like the white fur stuff was, um, I, I've been a little less afraid these days to do things that are a bit more clear and digital almost. I mean, for a long time, I, I only used just thrift store tape machines uh, to record the things that I was doing, to kind of assemble them, to play around. and uh, I got a Zoom digital recorder a couple of years ago, and I, it's been kind of seeping its way into the, the work that I've been doing lately. And I mean, in, in a big way, it's just that I'm listening to different things. I've, I've immersed myself in kind of different worlds than I necessarily was when I was making the white fur stuff. So... I guess these days I'm listening to a lot more of like Kai Records and Graham Lampkin and Finnish Psych Folk and Tomu Tantu and things like that. So it's changing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So are there still copies? Like you said, this white fur box set was done in some ways, not only just to kind of get that all out there, but in some ways a fundraiser for these upcoming releases, including that Lathe one. Are there still copies available of that through your website? Yeah, as of right now, I think I've got right around 10 copies of it. And um, it's, the orders are still kind of trickling in at this point, still getting some things going, so I don't expect to have it for too much longer. And the only dish show that picked up copies was Tomantosa. Uh, Josh has always been super supportive since the very beginning and has bought copies of every single thing I've ever done, so can't thank him enough for that. Right. But, yeah, if you miss out on on it through the website, I, I would keep an eye on Tomentosa in the upcoming weeks to snag a copy. Right. Always a great place to uh, purchase a lot of these harder-to-find things. But um, we're going to jump into the next set of music here, kind of the final block of music. And we're going to start off with something here from White Fur, your project. And I can't remember, was this, this track as a kind of... Uh, I don't want to say a medley, but it's a group of songs or tracks together. Uh, is this one from like the unreleased uh, material? Yeah, yeah. This is from that that fourth tape that's just called "Tail Smoke Laid Low," and yeah, it's a it's a selection of things. Um, the whole tape really is just kind of taken from different points in time. A lot of it, um, it's tapes that I ripped a long time ago, and I'm not entirely sure on years and things like that, but it, it's somewhere in the last couple of years that most of these things have come from, and um, I just kind of spent some time going through the archives, I guess, and mm-hmm. seeing what's 
seeing what stuck and what kind of came together to kind of add something new to that trilogy. Right, right. All right, so we're going to get things going here with uh, White Fur once again. And hey, thanks so much, Jordan, for taking the time to uh, chat with me. Thank you so much for the interest. Much, much appreciated.
right, you're hearing an excerpt here from the If Only They tape, as mentioned, another one of the works that Jordan had created, another one of the names that he was working under. And I want to thank Jordan once again for taking the time to speak with me for this show and for providing some of that forthcoming material that we played. You can check out the full playlist for this show and link to more information and sounds from Cabin Floresoterica by heading over to freeformfreakout.com. Or if you have any questions or comments for me, you can feel free to get in touch with me at fffreakout at hotmail.com. And check back with us in maybe three, if not four weeks for our next episode. I'm going to need just a little extra time as my schedule is going to be quite hectic in the coming weeks. But there are indeed more shows in the works, including a few more feature shows like this one. But thanks so much for listening as always.